If you have a Bible, open it now, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Our text today uh, is verses 19 through 23. As we're going to speak on the subject of God and sinners being reconciled, this is one of those awkward Sundays. It's not really Christmas. It's the day after Christmas. But we're all still in the... uh, uh, throws, I, I can't think of a better word than, in the atmosphere of Christmas a little bit. So we're still going to refer to some things that we would talk about around Christmas, but we're going to talk about it in a little bit of a different way. And so the passage we have this morning is in Colossians 1, and we want to look at verses 19 through 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once, who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our, our God, our Redeemer, our strength. And we pray that you would speak to us and encourage us and rebuke us and correct us and reprove us and lift us up and give us hope and strength all for your own glory, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are always two basic questions around Christmas. And the first question is, how did the Son of God come to earth? The second question is, why did the Son of God come to earth? We covered uh, Christmas Eve, how he came to earth, that is what we call the Incarnation, uh, God became physical. Uh, the, the Son of God was enfleshed with a human nature. And the second question is why he came, and that is found under the term reconciliation, to accomplish the act uh, through his, the blood of his cross of reconciliation. One of my favorite Christmas carols is Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. And we sing it, and Charles Wesley wrote it. He was, I think, a better theologian than his brother John, especially if you read his hymns carefully. But he saw in the Christmas story the angels sing the reason the Son of God came to the earth. God, And the reason he came is for peace, to bring peace on earth. Properly translated, uh, they sang, the shepherds did, Peace on earth and those upon whom God's grace and favor rest. And that's the reason Charles Wesley put it this way so beautifully. Peace on earth and mercy mild 
what? God and sinners reconcile. That's why he came. That's really the purpose behind Christ, uh, Christmas. God and sinners reconciled. Why did he become physical? Why did the incarnation happen? It says it in verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. There was a problem. We were in an unreconciled relationship, and that is the reason Jesus came and became physical in order to reconcile us. Before we move on, I can remember a few years ago, probably more years ago than I remember, maybe back in the 80s, there was uh, a movement which is very resonant with what the secular culture regards Christmas as being about. It's the season for giving. And uh, so you watch television or anything else, there's no mention of Jesus or no mention of reconciliation or anything like that. We just want to make the world a better place by showing love one day a year and giving gifts. And so there was a live aid concert that gave birth to the song, We Are the World. Do you remember that song? Well, I didn't know. Some of you weren't even alive in 1985. We are the world. We are the children. We are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. Now, what's interesting in that Live Aid concert was one particular participant named Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan, who most of you know, was something of a rock star, uh, enigmatic as he was but he was singing it on the video and after the uh, press conference after the concert somebody asked him and he said look I'm really uncomfortable singing this song and somebody said well why were you so uncomfortable Bob Dylan and he said I'll tell you why because man cannot save himself that is the truest thing Bob Dylan ever said Man cannot save himself. We can't make the world a better place. And so we look today into Bob Dylan for the meaning of Christmas because he got it right. The Bible said Jesus Christ came because we cannot save ourselves. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. There's a big problem. And something had to be done about it. And the way Christmas is expounded in, Christmas, uh, in public anymore is that Christmas means if we work together really hard, we can save ourselves. But Bob Dylan had it right. We can't save ourselves. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners need to be reconciled. And this little passage shows us the need for reconciliation. That is why it, we are so desperate for it. Number two, the way of reconciliation, how it was accomplished. And number three, the results of reconciliation. First, the need for reconciliation. And it's extremely important for us to understand it or we won't search for it or seek for it. An awful lot of people would say, well, why do we need to be reconciled with God? But it says here, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. What Paul does here, which happens so often in the New Testament, is when he tries to explain our spiritual condition, he's at least somewhat indirectly and often sometimes directly right on referring to the Old Testament. Here, he's referring to the um, 3D 
visual aids of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament and the rituals and the ceremonies. And he says we're not in a condition of presentability to the very face and presence of God. We are not ready because we are unholy and we are blemished. We're born that way. You know, I was having a deep reflection the other day, and I thought, you know, nobody ever had to teach me how to lie. I did not go to school and take a class called Lying 101. I already knew how to do it. I lied when I was a little boy. And every time I was caught, I mean, that was one of the worst sins I could commit as a child would be to lie. But I lied. I knew how to do it already. I knew how to be rebellious. I knew how to say the word no before long before I knew how to say the word yes. And I don't think I'm unique in that. We're born in a condition and we're not presentable. We're just not. So when we think about this, we need to think deeply about this. Even though it's not directly alluded to, Paul here is, of course, referring to the rituals of the tabernacle and the temple, and what was the ritual? Well, it's simple. Um, let me give you a summary because Paul is talking about it. In the center of the tabernacle or in the center of the t temple was the holy place, and that was the place where God would dwell. That was where his presence or his face was in the temple or tabernacle. And if you wanted to go back there, you had to go in clean and unblemished yourself with a sacrifice that was also clean and without blemish or defect. You had to become clean yourself, but you also had to go back with a sacrifice that was also without blemish. And when you read all of these regulations, especially in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, Modern people sometimes are extremely confused by that, especially the cleanliness laws. You were not fit to be present, presented before the presence of God if you weren't clean. When you read the clean laws, you'll see that they're incredibly comprehensive and incredibly detailed. And as a result, we're very confused. First of all, you couldn't go back with any kind of dirt on your body. You had to have clean bodies. You had to wash in the laver, which was a huge bowl of water to wash in. A big sea was what it was actually called. And you could go back and worship, you couldn't go back and worship God unless you had been washed. So you had to get yourself clean. And it wasn't that you just merely had to get yourself clean, you also had to have clean clothing. Your clothes couldn't be soiled, they couldn't be of certain fabrics. They certainly couldn't have excrement on them or blood or anything like that. In addition, you had to be physically whole. You couldn't be a eunuch. You couldn't be a leper. You couldn't have a hemorrhage of any sort. There couldn't be a blood flow. There, of course, were dietary laws. All of those you had to do with making yourself clean and without blemish if you were going to go before God. We get a little concerned confused about all of this when we think about it sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees you have to stand back and say okay what's the purpose of all of this preparation if you realize how detailed they were you realize that there was almost no way unless you work constantly and even if you work constantly that you were continually getting unclean just by normal uh, ebb and flow of life you're always getting unclean there was almost no way you could go out in public 
during the day because you would come in contact with dead things. And so uh, stuff that made you unclean, uh, disease things, you might get a disease, is extremely difficult. Why? Why did God do that? Why was that in the Old Testament? What is God trying to say? And what he's trying to say to us all is, there's something wrong with you. There is something wrong with you spiritually. The physical clean laws were there to say that spiritually we are in an unclean condition. And as a result of that, I'm getting feedback and I think it's from this monitor over here. You think it might be this? I'm getting a little roar. Okay, that's better. All right, so in thinking about these things, uh, it's, it's important to remember that uh, the physical clean laws purpose in the Old Testament was to teach the people that they were spiritually in an unclean condition. And that's uh, important. The normal way we go about life there's almost no way to avoid that. We're continually getting in a position where we're unfit spiritually before God. We're unreconciled. We're unholy. We're unworthy. And we're not fit for his presence. And that's what those laws were there to tell us about. They were visual age. Well, somebody says, well, that's nice for them. But that's extremely primitive, Pastor. Uh, we don't understand God that way anymore. We've come to a higher transcendent understanding of God. We don't believe in that sort of God anymore. Uh, I need to take a couple of minutes here because I think the passage here is alluding to this. Paul is not saying, well, yes, of course, that was 100 years ago, but now we believe in a God of love. No. He says those things, the temple rituals, were pointing to spiritual realities, unchanging spiritual realities, and the reality is we are unfit for the presence of God. We cannot enter his presence the way we are. I would even go so far as to say, just don't think about the Old Testament for a moment. It's common sense. Let me uh, give you this illustration to help you understand it. Uh, talk about it uh, psychologically. When I was a teenager, I had a real problem with uh, acne and pimples. I had bad skin, so to speak. Facial blemishes is the clean uh, sort of laboratory term we would use for that. And back in that day, they did not have something called Accutane. They did not have these little pills that you could take that would make your face clear up. And I can remember because of that skin condition being quite humiliated about it. Uh, often not feeling fit to be in the presence of certain people because of how I looked. And so in those days I had plenty of blemishes and you know you checked yourself in the mirror often or a window or storefront or whatever. And when you did that once or twice a day you decided as a result of that I've got this third eye knot on my head, and I don't think I'll go to the dance tonight, you know. Or I don't think I'll visit this person, or I don't feel like going here and there. It, it sort of made you antisocial, and it, sometimes you were upset, and you would say, goodness, look at those blemishes. Then your parents would say, well, you want to go with us to go visit so-and-so? And you would say, no thanks. 
I'm not presentable. That's what I wanted to say. I'm not presentable. I don't want them to see me like this. I would say common sense goes even deeper, much deeper than this. Let me take you down and ask you a question about how the human law systems work. And then you'll see. Let me ask you three things about our human laws. What is the purpose of human law? What is the content of human law? And what are the consequences of disobedience? The purpose of human laws, why do we have them? So we can live at peace with each other, hopefully. We have human laws so we can have fellowship with each other, so we can live together, so we can try to get along. And if we trample upon them and we treat them as less than what they are, we must not treat them as less than human beings. If we trample on them and treat them, then what are we doing? There will be no peace. So laws out there are saying you must treat human beings with dignity and respect. You must treat human beings as what they are, human beings made in the image of God, and that's the content of the law. So what are the consequences of breaking human law? What happens when we trample on other human beings and treat them as less than what they are? Well, it's obvious what happens when we do that. Somebody breaks into your house and ransacks it and destroys everything you have. If somebody robs a bank and they come before the judge and they say, I'm sorry, what do you say? What does the community say? What does the judge say? Sorry is not good enough. What was that movie, Love Story? Love means never having to say you're sorry. That's the stupidest thing in the whole world. <laughs> and I have to tell you, when I was 16 or 17 years old, when I came out, that was a profound moment for me. Oh, love means you never have to say you're sorry. Love means you have to say you're sorry all the time. All the time. Because you are. You're sorry. And as a result of that, uh, so you're in an unreconciled relationship with the community when you break whatever community you live in's laws, and a debt has to be paid. And until that debt is to be paid, you lose privileges of citizenship, or you used to. Uh, you are not in reconciliation. You are unclean, and this is what happens when somebody uh, is convicted of a crime. If they break a law, what is breaking a law? It is simply treating another human being or other human beings as less than what they are. And they can't just say, I'm sorry. They lose something. They go in debt. They lose their privileges. There are all sorts of levels and sorts of ways. They could be put in prison. They could have real limitations placed upon them. They are in an unreconciled relationship until the debt is paid. Now let's look at God's law. What does the Bible say is the purpose of God's law? Why do we have to obey God? For peace, for fellowship, so that we can live with him. What is the content of God's law? It's very simple. It all breaks down to this. To treat God nothing less than what he is is to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And if, if he's your creator, then simply loving him and obeying him is treating him as he is. And not to treat him any less than what he is as God. What are the consequences of refusing to obey God's law? When you decide to live your life as if you belong to yourself, as if you're your own creator and you are your own lawgiver, what are you doing? 
you are treating him less than what he is. You have broken his law. Don't you see? It's not a matter of rules and regula regulations. Let's look at the essence and the core of this reality. When you break God's law, you act as if you are your own king. When you treat him as anything less than what he is, king, creator, source of everything, what happens? Well, you can't just say, sorry about that. Many people think we've evolved to the place where we have a God who is love and all you have to do is say, I'm sorry, and he'll instantly forgive you. People say, we don't believe in a God who says there are debts that must be paid. In other words, what you're trying to say is you refuse to treat God with the same consideration with which you would demand to be treated by others. Think about it. When the human community laws are broken, you're in an unreconciled relationship, and that debt has to be paid. You are unclean. There couldn't be community otherwise. There couldn't be even a society otherwise. Now, let me point this out to you. This is much more serious because as you... As much as you may owe to your family, as much as you may owe to your community, as much as you may owe to your human family, it's nothing like what you owe to God. If there is a God, if there is a personal creator, if there is a transcendent, a God to whom you owe everything, then your debt is infinite. Sinning against a transcendent, infinite God is infinite cosmic treason. And the Bible is simply saying, is what it's saying here is common sense. It's very, very serious. All it's saying is, you wouldn't even have to read the Old Testament to see this, the clean laws and the sacrifices to know this. All you have to do is have common sense. If there's a God who created me and I owe that God a debt I can't possibly pay and still have anything left over at the end, if I owe that God a debt and I can't possibly pay and live, I owe that God a debt I can't possibly make good. Therefore, I am unclean. I am unholy. I am blemished. We're all in an unreconciled relationship with God and all you have to do to enter that condition is be born. We are born in an unreconciled relationship with God. We are unclean. There's a lot of things in the Christian faith that are difficult to grasp at first. In fact, it may take a long time to figure it out, but this is not one of them. This is clear. This is something that on the surface of it makes perfect sense to most anyone. You can't sin against God and treat him less than who he is and then turn around and say, well, no problem. That French philosopher, I think it was Voltaire, but I'm not completely sure, said this. Someone asked him, aren't you afraid of meeting God? And he said, no, I'm not afraid. God will forgive me. That's his job. And he has lots of relatives around us. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all that if, if there be a God, there'd be a God whose job it was to forgive you. You might have a God who wanted to forgive, just like the judge wants to forgive, the community wants to forgive, but there has to be a payment. Unclean, unreconciled. Paul shows us 
we need to be reconciled. And that's every one of us, everyone in the building. So what is the way of reconciliation? Even again, even though Paul is not, uh, of course, alluding again to the tabernacle and temple worship, he's definitely referring to it in verse 22 when he says he reconciled you to Christ through Christ's physical body, through his death. But in verse 20, he puts it this way. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. So here's the way of reconciliation. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and temple ritual, not only did you have to go wash up and make yourself as clean as you could be, and recognize you couldn't be blemished, you couldn't have a hemorrhage, you had to be physically clean, you had to bring a sacrifice with you. Just to let you know how important that is, go home and read the book of Leviticus today. Uh, you might get through three chapters. It's a tough read. You know, uh, we all agree every book in the Bible is inspired, but it's not sinful to say not every book in the Bible is equally as interesting. I mean, you want to read the census in the book of Numbers, go ahead. <laughs> it, it, it'll, it'll help you sleep at night but that's why that's in there to show us our ultimate need for reconciliation but if, as you look at the repetitiousness of it as you read Leviticus it's repeated over and over again when any of you say make an offering offer a male animal without defect lay your hand on its head and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you hmm when you get to Leviticus 16, it talks about the Day of Atonement. There were two goats. The high priest Aaron was to lay his hand on one goat's head, and it says, lay your hand on the goat's head, confess all of the sins of the people, put the sins of the people on that goat, and drive it out. That's called the scapegoat. Drive it out away from the camp. Send it out of the camp. Put it in a solitary place. The other goat, without defect, without blemish, it represents you. It was slain for the sins of the people. The Old Testament ritual said, when you lay your hands on that goat, it represents you. When you touch the sacrifice, it is without blemish, and its blemishlessness represents you. But the moment you touch it, it gets your blemishes. It represents you in a sense in two ways. On the one hand, its perfection becomes your perfection, but your imperfection becomes its imperfection. And so the Bible tells us, in other words, what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to see that Jesus Christ is that bloody sacrifice without defect. Do you know what it means to be a Christian? Not just trying to make Jesus your example and work harder. I'll tell you what it means to be a Christian, and this is simple. It means to spiritually lay your hands upon him like Aaron laid his hands on the goat, like every person who ever did a sacrifice. You lay your hands on him, and his blemishlessness becomes yours, and your blemishes becomes his. He gets what your sins deserves. He pays for them. He pays for them. The Bible tells us, in other words, that's what it means to be a Christian. And it's very often uh, interesting 
when we start thinking about it this way. Uh, look in the book uh, of the Gospel of Mark, and there was a woman with a flow of blood, uh, a woman who was hemorrhaging, I think, for some 15 years. She had a flow of blood, and she decides she's going to go up to Jesus and in the crowd, which was pressing against him, and touch him. And that's in Mark chapter 5. When she touches him, she says, then I know I'll be healed, but I better do it secretly. What's all that about? The woman was unclean because she had, as uh, it wasn't that you were not only not allowed to go to the temple, if you had a flow, uh, flow of blood, you had to be healed. And she had some hemorrhage, probably been to the doctor for years, Nobody could help her or cure her with it. And as a result, she had not been in the presence of God for years. She was ritually unclean. And when you're ritually unclean, if you touch somebody, that made them unclean. Even if they didn't have the problem, they were unclean for several days. If you touched an, a dead body, you were unclean. If you touched someone who was clean the unclean made the clean unclean do you see what i'm saying that's there it's all over the place so she says to herself i'm going to go up and get healed i have to touch the master i have to touch this jesus christ but i could never come up in front and say to him please let me touch you to touch a rabbi to touch a holy person like that no so what i'll do is i'll sneak up in the crowd and i'll touch him and she says i'm not worthy to go near him but i will touch him it's interesting to see by the way you know how the pharisees and many of the religious leaders of their day had a twisted view of the clean laws in their minds that physical cleanliness was virtually the same thing as spiritual cleanliness. They were very proud that they were fit for God because they were so clean. The poor lepers and the woman with the issue of blood and the eunuch and all the people talked about felt so unclean. In other words, by turning the ritual ceremonial laws into a legalistic code, by missing the forest for the trees, is what the people of the day were doing, what is ironic is that it was the religious snobs who were killing themselves because it was w the woman like this, the lepers, the outcast, who came after Jesus because they felt unfit. The legalistic code made them feel unfit. And the legalistic code made the other people feel it. That is why Jesus says to the Pharisees at this point, one point, the pimps and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than you are. So what's he saying? And what am I trying to say? Is there anybody here who thinks what I'm saying in this particular biblical approach is that you are offensive to God? That you are unreconciled to God? That you are sinners and you are not fit to be in his presence? Does that bother you? Does that offend you? Do you say, I'm not that bad. Come on, pastor. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. I don't like this whole idea. I don't feel it's that way at all. Jesus says, you're far from the kingdom of God if you feel that way. You are far from the kingdom of God. Do you want me to say it again? If you feel like what I'm saying to you is offensive, if you feel like what, what I'm saying to you is uh, uh, unfavorable to you, 
then you are far from the kingdom of God. And if there's anybody here today who says, I'm unworthy, I'm unfit, you don't know what I've done. I have failed God in so many ways and so many people in my life as well. Jesus says you are very close to the kingdom of God. If you think you're far away, you're near. And if you think you're near, you're far away. And that's the gospel. Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that give you hope? Do you see what happened? We can go to the Bible and see other places too. This woman thought she was really far away, was actually quite near to the kingdom. She came up and she touched him. She was healed and it, everyone was startled. And whenever the holy and the unholy touch, whenever the unholy touches the holy, somebody dies especially if you read the Bible. Up until that time, you can take a look at Mount Sinai. God says, don't touch my holy mountain. If a sinner touched the holy mountain, he died. Look at Uzzah. Remember him steadying the Ark of the Covenant? When he touched it, what happened? He died. Anyone who touched the Ark of the Covenant died. Nadab and Abihu in the book of Numbers. Anyone who touched the holy fire died. She comes up, she touches Jesus, and she lives and is healed. Here's why. She's a picture of what it means to be a Christian. Do you see what happened? She was unholy, he was holy. She touched him. Why did she live? Because of the infinite wisdom, the infinite grace of God, the wonder of the ages, when the unholy touches the holy, someone still has to die. And in this case, Jesus is the holy one who dies. It is the holy one who dies. She did make him unclean. Her uncleanness went into him. And that's a picture of what it means to be a Christian. I touch him, and instead of me, the unholy dying, he, the holy, dies, and my uncleanness goes to him. The holy one is the one who dies. He doesn't make me dead. I make him dead. Actually, the picture in Mark 5 is such a picture. Her flow of blood stops because the flow of his blood began. Not right there. Not immediately. It's just a picture. In other words, when he died on the cross, we got his blemishlessness so he would get our blemishes. And now we stand before God represented by Jesus Christ. That's the reason why we can say what it means to be a Christian now is to be holy and without blemish and without accusation in his sight. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. This is all in the present tense through death to present you holy in his sight. You are presentable now when you come to Jesus. You are being presented now as if you had done exactly that. Touched him. The unholy touches the holy and the holy becomes unholy and dies. And the unholy becomes holy and lives. That's what's going on. And that's what's beautiful about the gospel. The sweet exchange, the transfer, the laying of hands on it. Now it represents you because Jesus represents you before the Father and makes atonement to you. Well, what are the results of this reconciliation? Here's what the radical results are. They're mentioned in the text, and I want to spend a little time talking about you and showing the ramifications. They are 
Radical, there are radical individual results of reconciliation, and there is a radical cosmic result of the reconciliation. The individual ones we've mentioned already, you are now holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you spend some time just meditating on those things today and what they really mean, you'd have joy and a sense of celebration in your being. You would have confidence in your life that nothing could take away from you. I believe it's talking about God both personally and legally. First of all, it says, holy in his sight without blemish. Somehow, to say that I am holy in his sight because of what Jesus has accomplished for me, because of him taking my sin and him giving me his holiness, in thinking about that, it means that we are now beautiful to him. You ever hear anybody sing and maybe there's a passage in the song where they just hit a note and it sends chills up and down your spine and you are captured in the moment. You are awestruck by that and you say to yourself, you know what, that's, that's a thing of beauty. That was beautiful. Oh my gosh, how beautiful that was. Or let's say you're on a beach looking at a sunset or you're in a, a museum looking at a piece of art. And you say, my gosh, how beautiful that is. And your heart leaps up. You're moved by it. You're touched by it. You know how delight happens, how it takes your breath away. That is saying that in Christ, we take God's breath away, as it were. He now finds us beautiful. He loves us like that. We are beautiful to him. It's astonishing. No other religion could ever come close to telling you anything like this. You can reject Christianity by saying that's too good to be true. By the way, you can make a pretty good rational case why it ought to be too good to be true. I can really respect people who doubt Christianity when they say it's too good to be true. This is too much. This is too wonderful. But that's what the word grace means. But when someone says... This is too terrible, this is too primitive, this is too awful, this is too negative. You don't know it yet. Holy and blameless, he finds us beautiful, he finds us presentable. He is proud of us. Proud of us. It means if we come to God in him, if you lay your hands on him and treat him as what he says he is here, it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what you've done you can be part of Jesus's family he's proud of you his love and grace abound over you what it means is that now you are absolutely free from any accusation he's not just feeling mercy Jesus Christ has paid the debt reconciliation is a living thing and a legal thing if you're a Christian for God to not forgive your sin would mean that God would be getting two payments one in the body of Christ and one out of your body but God wouldn't do double jeopardy and so God has accepted that payment the very justice of God demands that we stay free from accusation that we will never be liable to condemnation in any way mercy is always unobligated and justice is always obligated mercy is unobligated if it was obligated it wouldn't be mercy <laughs> 
But justice is absolutely obligated. If obligated, unobligated, it wouldn't be justice. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, free from accusation. Just for God not to forgive a Christian would be unjust. His justice demands that. And so therefore we have a security that is untouchable. He finds us beautiful personally. He treats us as if we're perfect legally. There never has been such a radical claim of such a relationship with the creator of God. Our creator God is at all possible for anyone. Those who have that relationship know that it gives you joy and it gives you confidence that can never be put out. The only other thing I have to point out is that Christmas, the fact that God became human and became physical implies strongly, and I said this on Christmas Eve, that reconciliation affected by God through Christ on earth is not just going to help you, the individual, spiritually, because it says for it, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, I know that's another whole sermon, and we're not going to do it today. But I do want to give you a little ser uh, sermonette on it. The idea that God would become flesh, that God would permanently inhabit a human body, means that God is not simply to take your poor little soul, which is falling apart, put it together, and then let the entire universe around us, which is falling apart, and put it together. By the way, the universe is falling apart. A lot of people think this country is falling apart. It's always been falling apart. Uh, sometimes we look back nostalgically and think there were good times where it wasn't falling apart. That's, under, that's surface, but that's not underneath. The second law of thermodynamics, everything's falling apart. You and I are falling apart. Time's out of joint. Nature is out of joint. Uh, everything's falling apart, but the reconciliation in Jesus Christ someday will bring it all together. Everything. That is the reason why Christians are more pessimistic and more optimistic than anyone else. We're more pessimistic because we know the problems we have in our culture are never going to be solved by this or that legislative program because they come from the fact that existence itself is falling apart under the weight of sin. On the other hand, Christians are more optimistic than anybody because we can work against the physical, social decay and spiritual decay of this planet. We can go out there and take the gospel out there and work against these things and work against some of the problems in the culture, knowing that ultimately everything will come together. Peace on earth, mercy mild, every part of reality with God reconciled. So there's a joy and a confidence we can have. Now let me ask you this question. Are you unclean? Are you blemished? Are you unholy? The gospel is this. You can lay your hands upon the Savior and he will take upon the cross. He took your blemishes. He took your uncleanness upon himself and he will give you his beauty, his holiness, his cleanliness, 
his purity and will look upon you with favor for the rest of your life. You know why people don't do this? Because they don't understand why they need to be reconciled. It's like a, a, a bad marriage. You ever been in a bad marriage? <laughs> Maybe you're in one now. And you would say that we are unreconciled at the present time. We just, we're at a, uh, we're at a uh, um, standstill, we're at a standoff, and there's just no connection here, and we, it, it's bad. The relationship is horrible. Um, we, we, we can't move forward. We can't go anywhere because our relationship is so broken. And so... What do you do when you have a, a standoff like that in the marriage? Well, it's all her fault. Or it's all his fault, you know. I'm the one that's been given to myself. In the, I've given all my time. I've done it. And you go on and on justifying yourself. And on the other side, well, it's all his fault. He doesn't pay any attention to me. He didn't care about me. He spends his money. He lives his own life. I, I could drop dead tomorrow and he wouldn't know it for a week. Okay? That's real stuff. It's all his fault. But to come to Jesus, to be reconciled to someone, means you've got to own where you've come short. You've got to seek some kind of mercy and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the oil that lubricates the whole chassis of marriage, the whole body of it. Forgiveness. And that's what we get when we come to Jesus. We have to own the fact that we are unclean. We are unholy. We are unworthy. We are broken. Our life is falling apart, no matter what it looks like on the outside. So come to Jesus and experience that glorious exchange and transfer. He gives us what he has. He takes what I am. And gives me what he has and is. And I am forever under his favor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. It just helps us think and clarifies things for us. We do pray that you would, by your spirit, take this word and work it in our lives and in our hearts. And we pray that it would... Uh, bring about fruit in us. It would bring about a life of rejoicing, a life of uh, joy, and a life of uh, caring for others, loving others, getting out of ourselves, doing ministry because of the joy we know in you. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as people who once were unclean and blemished and unholy, who are now clean and unblemished, and radically holy. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.